Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. Hi, and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. In this episode, I, Marva Tabor, will be having a conversation with Dr. Sofia Varino, who is a writer and cultural historian based in Berlin. Dr. Varino is a postdoctoral research fellow working with the Minor Cosmopolitanism's Research Training Group at the Department of English and American Studies at the University of Potsdam in Germany. Dr. Verino's research and teaching interests include cultural history and theory, science and technology studies, political ecology, American studies, and queer and feminist theories. Dr. Verino has published widely in academic journals and is currently working on two book-length projects. Her first book project, Viral Ecologies, traces the multiple genealogies of the coronavirus pandemic across racial and environmental justice movements. Her second book, Aquotopia, examines climate politics and aesthetics with Mae Joseph. Dr. Varina holds a PhD in cultural studies with a certificate in art and philosophy from the State University of New York. Hi, Sophia. Thank you for joining us. I'm super excited to learn more about your research project in this episode. Today, we will talk about Viral Objects, your new book project, which traces the genealogies of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you tell us a bit about your research interests and what brought you to this project? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I've been writing about immunology and about uncertainty in uh, biomedical practices more broadly. And when the pandemic started, I just found myself constantly staying up all night, reading about everything that was happening. And at the beginning, there was so much uncertainty. So, you know, there were so many different versions of the same facts of the same events. And I just felt like the world was kind of becoming a social experiment of everything that I'm interested in. Uh, to an extreme extent, it was very disturbing. And I, I started to just, you know, do a lot of writing and collating websites and just um, this um, cluster of thoughts and ideas started to form on my desktop. And I stopped being able to pay attention to other things I was working on at the time, uh, other projects, other commitments. It was kind of a very obsessive relationship with this pandemic as it was unfolding. And 
after I had amassed a substantial amount of notes and thoughts and material, I started feeling like, well, maybe this is something I really have to turn into my new research project. Since I can't stop thinking about it, um, why not just do that? And, and so I did. And when I um, applied for a new postdoc position, um, I included a, a project precisely on the on the pandemic from a, an ecological minor perspective, uh, because as we will talk about later as well, I'm part of the minor cosmopolitanisms research group. And so we're paying attention to marginal, marginalized voices. Um, so that's what brought me to, to the project. And of course, as the pandemic unfolds, it becomes different things. And that's quite fascinating for me as well. So it's kind of a a very phenomenological project in the sense that I keep re-encountering my object of study from you know completely unexpected angles and it keeps reshaping itself as I do that. So what are these viral objects that inform your project title? Could you give us some examples of the viral objects that you're working with? Yeah so um, one, one idea that really um, fascinates me, which is informed by uh, Ludwig Fleck, um, is the idea of thinking styles in biomedical practice and biomedical research. And I think one of the thinking styles we um, see very prevalent uh, as the pandemic develops um, is a preventative logic, right? So the idea is to prevent um, more uh, infections, more deaths, so within this preventative logic, I have selected uh, four different uh, objects to focus on. And I'm thinking of these objects also as practices. So one of them is masks and masking, which go from you know, the most rudimentary everyday cloth masks that many of us are, are wearing uh, to prevent uh, becoming infected and infected, infecting others. And then I'm focusing on testing and vaccines, of course, as kind of two pillars of um, mainstream biomedical practice uh, and connecting them you know, to the genealogies of those two practices that have very long histories. Uh, and then I'm focusing on a kind of controversial um, minor theory, uh, shall we say, about how vitamin D might be able to prevent and even cure um, uh, cases of COVID. Uh, and that really interests me because that's very much a minor narrative within mainstream science uh, that is not as um, central by any means, but has its own particular history of, you know, how, how specific nutrients uh, can prevent uh, disease and infection. As someone who tries to follow the most recent discussions on whether certain supplements can help our bodies fight COVID-19 better, I'm particularly interested in this minor narrative on vitamin D. Uh, there have also been discussions on the potential benefits of traditional Chinese medicine and herbal treatments, so I'd love to hear more about how these minor narratives relate to one another and are articulated within biomedical discourses 
and how are these viral objects affecting our everyday lives? Yeah, so um, just to focus a little bit on, on, on vitamin D first, um, there's circumstantial evidence um, uh, that uh, deficiency in vitamin D might be a factor um, in becoming more severely ill with COVID. Uh, so it's circumstantial in the sense that it's not uh, being uh, proven uh, within a, a laboratory study that this is the case, um, but there are links. And this, might, this might be causal links or not, so we're not sure about that. But this kind of narrative immediately interests me because um, malnutrition is generally a factor in public health. And it's particularly a factor when we think about environmental racism and about how certain um, marginalized groups have much less access to nutritious food. Uh, and with that lack of access to nutritious foods comes also more exposure to environmental pollution and toxic substances. So for me, thinking about um, vitamin D allows me to kind of go off course, and I chose vitamin D because it's um, it's kind of part of mainstream discourse. So there's you know there aren't any um, great debates over uh, whether or not vitamin D exists or whether it is important, right? Uh, whereas, for example, um, Chinese medicine is it, it, there's much more controversy uh, when you look, um, at mainstream, uh, biomedical practices in Western medicine, there's much more controversy over whether Chinese medicine is valid or not scientifically valid or not. Um, so for, for, and I feel that for me to write about Chinese medicine, which I'm very fond of and have used extensively in my personal life, very interested in it, but I don't have the kind of expertise that would allow me to really write about it in depth. I feel like I would be very much on the surface of things. Um, so, so that's why I, I chose um, vitamin D. And I think, you know, the other viral objects that I picked, um, I also chose them because they're, um, they're something we're constantly encountering throughout this pandemic. So um, most of us are using masks on a daily basis whether you know, they're masks that are um, uh, more sophisticated or uh, more rudimentary that maybe we even make ourselves or our friends send us or whatever. Um, and then um, testing and vaccines are something we are constantly talking about. I was just at a meeting this week with, with colleagues where we're talking about how uh, it might be possible for us to get tested without having to pay the extra fee uh, that, uh, that we are being charged currently in, in Germany. So um, they're, they're, there's, they're so familiar, these, these viral objects, um, as we live through this uh, pandemic, um, they're so familiar that I wanted to write about them and to defamiliarize them a little bit and to engage both with mainstream discourses in the media, in po popular science, and to also think, think about them from a more um, expert scientific perspective. Uh, and I'm always looking for this um, uncertainty and determinacy. That's what always interests me, how we can't really be um, certain 
of the things we seem to be so certain of and why do we want to believe certain narratives and not others? So why do we put so much faith, for example, in vaccines, um, but others don't? For example, I want to be vaccinated as soon as possible, but I acknowledge that there are risks associated with it. But for other people, um, vaccines are in and of themselves unsafe. Um, so why do we see things in these, in these different ways uh, is part of what interests me. Were there any other viral objects that you considered including in, in your study, um, but then um, decided not to? That's a fascinating question. There are. Ventilators were one of the objects. And the other object was, oh, it was a specific kind of treatment that I now forgot. It was used precisely um, in Chinese hospitals. And so I, I took those away because they do not have um, a clear preventative logic operating. So that's been one of the big challenges with this project is to really condense things and to find a way to structure it. Because I mean, I could go, I could get really dispersed and go into so many different directions. Um, so I've tried to have this very clear structure of, you know, four chapters, for viral objects to give it shape and structure. I want to ask you about how you approach these viral objects. You employ an interdisciplinary methodology that brings together different approaches in the humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences. So how does this interdisciplinary approach help you navigate the various genealogies of the pandemic. Um, so you have your viral objects. Let's say you are writing about masks. What do you do with it? What kinds of sources do you use? Are you doing field work? Are you working with material objects? Are you doing discourse analysis? Or are you looking at artwork or literature? Yeah, so my, my um, methodology is very much informed by cultural history and particularly history of science and medicine. So I do much more um, archival research. Um, I do not do field work, um, although often when I uh, tell people I'm working on a project about the pandemic, they kind of presume that I do field work. Um, but I, I haven't. Um, I may decide to do to include some um, some interviews um, in terms of case studies, uh, in which case I would interview most likely some uh, very famous immunologists and uh, other experts just to kind of show how divergent um, opinions within a very specific field like immunology um, already are. So how science is not one homogenous thing, you know, science with a capital S, but is rather very heterogeneous. Um, there's a lot of um, different controversies. Uh, as we can see, for example, in development of the vaccines, there are very different viral logics operating uh, at different labs within different companies. Um, and there's a lot of competition, of course, who's going to produce the most efficient, effective vaccine uh, and how fast, right? So um, this kind of um, 
market competition, this economic aspect of the pandemic really interests me as well. Um, so I, I, when, I, when I think about genealogies, I mostly mean kinds of um, material histories. So how, you know, when you think about um, the mask that you put on, um, it's an object, it has kind of solidified as an object in your hand, on your face, but it has a really long history of how other kinds of masks have been um, used, for example, throughout the 20th century um, to prevent chemical exposure uh, in the context of chemical warfare, for example, um, or how masking has been used uh, when there's uh, very high levels of pollution uh, in a particular region. So um, masks are, are something that we are now using in a specific context, but they share a very long um, lineage with other similar objects. So I use a lot of um, methodologies that come from um, history of science and medicine, and I mostly use uh, archival research, which is what I really um, enjoy doing and very much miss doing because of course, um, for now, my research is just digital. And, and that's both frustrating sometimes, um, but it also leads me you know, in different directions in terms of um, databases that I probably uh, would not dig as deeply into uh, if I had other um, kinds of access. So, yeah. I'm also curious to hear if you have encountered any artwork or literary text that deals with these viral objects in their materiality. Are you considering including artistic and literary works in your analysis? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I haven't encountered anything yet that I felt like, oh, this kind of encapsulates something uh, about viral objects that I, I want to, to include. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm doing in my, in my project is I'm including these little interludes between chapters when I try to engage more deeply with uh, the materiality of a virus, of RNA and how it acts in the world, how it behaves, how you must jump from cell to cell, organism to organism. Um, so that's kind of a, a creative project that's adjacent uh, to the book, but that I will include in between the more serious, proper academic um, chapters. But if, uh, if, if um, anyone has uh, any ideas about great art that's being made about um, COVID-19, I'm very curious. I mean, because even if I don't um, include it in the project to to analyze, it always makes you think in a different way, right? That's what art does. It just destabilizes all your uh, parameters and it, it allows you to, to think about things in a different way. But I don't know, have you come across any great art or, or I don't know, fiction or whatever? Actually, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed the group at Penn State about their project, Viral Imaginations COVID-19. And this project invites people in the community to express their experiences of the pandemic and how they relate to these kinds of viral objects that you're working on through artistic creations. Anyone who resides in Pennsylvania 
can submit their creation. This could be a photo, an illustration, a painting, or a poem. And these are curated on the project website. So for example, there are works that deal with the experience of wearing masks in general, or wearing a mask during the Black Lives Matter protests. So the questions of how these viral objects circulate among the public and how they relate to issues of racism and environmental justice are expressed through people's personal experiences of the pandemic. The title of the project, Viral Imaginations, is also on conceptually similar grounds with viral objects. So perhaps this project could be of interest to you. Love it. I, I, I hope that I can, I can get a glimpse of it online, you know. Yeah, and I imagine that this is a, a very productive moment for people who do bio art. Um, I mean, I can only imagine what's going to come out of all these different encounters we, we're having now with biomedicine and biomatter. I think there are uh, a lot of fantastic projects will, will be made. I mean, as always, right? I mean, these kinds of very extreme crises often prompt uh, creativity, creative responses. From, from many people. So I'm curious to, to see what artists are doing um, with this pandemic, yeah. I wanna ask you about the term viral and how it relates to the concept of virality understood more broadly in terms of circulation and dissemination I'm thinking of viral videos, for example. So as you define them, viral objects serve a preventative function. So the purpose of the viral object is paradoxically to stop virality. How do these objects become viral in their attempts to prevent virality? Yeah, that's such a cool question. I love that question. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, vaccines and testing, I mean, more obviously are specifically dealing with the matter of the virus, right? It, in, in and of itself, uh, ways of, of handling uh, antibodies, antigens, way of manipulating, ways of manipulating um, uh, uh, viral material. Um, so in wanting to prevent um, the spread of COVID-19, the disease, um, there's a, a necessity to deal with uh, viral matter. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's why I thought of them as viral objects because in their materiality, they carry um, uh, viral material, right? Um, that's quite unavoidable. And then of course the masks we use um, ostensibly um, are going to be covered in particles that potentially can carry the virus, right? So that's why, you know, we come home, we wash them or we dispose of them. Um, so at least in theory, uh, they are in and of themselves carriers of, of the virus. Now, vitamin D, hmm, I'd have to think, how is vitamin D in itself viral? I think it become, you know, it's one of those things as this term I'm using now, becoming viral. Right, so once vitamin D becomes part of these discourses about avoiding the spread of COVID-19, um, it acquires a different quality. Um, for example, instead of being just 
boring old vitamin D that we're supposed to take and be exposed to the sun certain amount of hours a day, it acquires this emergency quality to it to the point that, you know, there's much higher um, sales right now of vitamin D than usual. So there's this kind of emergency um, that appears around vitamin D. And I think that's what the viral does, right? Viral videos, like you mentioned, um, there's a sense of, of emergency that, that comes with the ideas of, ideas of the viral. I like this concept of becoming viral or thinking virally because it also disrupts the boundary between the interior and the exterior. We attempt to keep the virus outside through masking, but an inactivated form of the virus is injected into our bodies when we are vaccinated. So in a way, this dynamic between the interior and the exterior is also being questioned when we think about how objects become viral. Yeah, for sure. And I think knowledge practices themselves are, are very viral. They're highly contagious, you know, like these particular logics, these particular thinking styles, right? So um, these collectives emerge that think in a particular way. So um, modes of thinking are, are also viral and, and highly contagious. So that also, that also interests me, yeah. Well, I'm building off of that. Um, my next question is about thinking ecologically, uh, which is a term that you use in your project description. We can also add thinking virally to this. Oh, yeah. um, so what does it mean to think ecologically right now? Um, do you think there's something unique about the pandemic as opposed to other planetary scale uh, ecological crises like climate change that requires a paradigm shift in environmental thought? Well, I think the paradigm shift is definitely um, necessary. And I think the pandemic um, highlights that necessity. And one of the things we've seen, of course, through this uh, pandemic that's uh, widely discussed um, is that there are lower levels of pollution just from the fact that uh, most of us are using uh, air travel much, much less. And I'm, I'm strongly against um, air travel um, as a very unregulated practice. I think that it should be heavily regulated um, and one of the things that the pandemic has done, like I said at the beginning, it's kind of been this uh, thought experiment that I'm uh, conducting in my head. Sometimes I think I'm just going to wake up and, and it's all over. I think we all do. Um, but yes, it has forced us to think ecologically in different ways. And I think it has really made it very clear that yes, it is possible not to be constantly traveling. I see that in my um, conference presentation schedule. I can still present. I use Zoom and other people use uh, different um, uh, technologies. And it's not as if this is the final and grand solution to everything, but I think that it, it does provide us with um, a very clear example of how we can do things differently, right? Uh, whereas before the pandemic, that was unthinkable. And this also um, strongly relates to another um, minor narrative that interests me around the pandemic, which is um, disability justice and disability rights. Uh, and that's another way that thinking ecologically um, 
is related directly, of course, to um, issues of environmental racism, but also uh, disability justice, because we can see how for so many people, it's impossible to present uh, at a conference. It's impossible to travel to begin with. Uh, it's impossible to attend a class, but because we are making things more accessible digitally, uh, and there's still a very long way to go in that regard, um, suddenly access is possible for people for whom it was never possible. Uh, and, you know, even uh, thinking not only in terms of disability, um, but also for, for people who are living in, in countries, for example, where there's just not, they don't have enough of a salary that allows them to travel, present, do this, do that, that they can now participate uh, through Zoom. Uh, they can, you know, there's just a, a, a plethora of possibilities for uh, social participation uh, through digital technologies that was not, um, was not in place before the pandemic. Um, and I think they, they will develop, they will continue to develop um, as, as the pandemic um, withers away, we hope, uh, soon enough uh, within the next two, three years, say. But I think this, this will continue because now we, we are in the habit of communicating like this, of encountering one another like this. So this opens up possibilities for me, not to get too optimistic about everything that's happening in the world, but um, in terms of thinking ecologically, that's part of what I'm, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, the question of disability rights is very important. What came to my mind is what is now being called the long haulers of COVID-19. A lot of people continue to experience long-lasting symptoms after being infected with the coronavirus. And some of these people are struggling with disabilities right now disabilities that may not be recognized by medical authorities. I've heard and read stories of people struggling with chest pain and fatigue and other symptoms for a year after getting infected. And when they go to the emergency room, sometimes the doctors tell them they're suffering from an anxiety attack. Um, despite the fact that there is a growing body of medical literature about the long-term effects of COVID-19, not just on internal organs, but also on mental health and neurological functions. So I'm wondering, what does this mean for the future of disability rights? Do you think that disability rights are going to be an integral part of discussions on the pandemic? Um, I mean, I, I sincerely hope so. And I really do hope that because um, so many of us are encountering what it's like to be made uh, vulnerable or sick or to feel exposed uh, because of this pandemic, either for ourselves or our loved ones or someone we know who got sick. I really hope that this makes it very clear that we can all become disabled at any given time, that we all experience disabling conditions, whether they are visible to others or not, and that a lot of disability is not visible. Um, so we, we often have these kinds of cliches about what disability is, but disability is much more complex than that. And a mental health condition can be disabling uh, in very many ways. Um, a lot of chronic illnesses are not in any way visible. Uh, and what you touched upon, how people can go to the 
emergency room and say, I have uh, chest pain and just be told, oh, you're having an anxiety attack, like in a very dismissive way. Um, that's something that directly um, impacts um, my, uh, minorities and because you are much more likely to get that kind of response from a medical professional if you uh, are perceived to be uh, part of a minority. The way you are gendered and racialized um, directly determines how you are uh, treated in, a, in any kind of medical environment. And there's a lot that's been written about this and it also plays out in terms of environmental racism. So, uh, you know, people who are exposed to environmental pollution or um, toxic substances who seek uh, medical care are much more likely to be told, oh, you're just imagining this, or, you know, you just want uh, an excuse not to go to work, um, or, you know, you're just having a panic attack, which is always an easy way of telling someone to go home and sleep it off and don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my friend also told me that she felt that um, she was being dismissed because she was a woman and that she felt like she was being like mansplained at the hospital. Basically, that was her experience. Absolutely. And I mean, there are lots of studies about how um, the pain of uh, women, uh, black people, people of color has been systematically dismissed. Uh, by medical institutions and by medical professionals. There's a, a lot of studies about that. It's just not taken seriously. Whereas if a cis white man says that he is in pain, the whole world stops, right? So there's a, a great disparity there, yeah. Also then my next question is gonna be about racial justice. How does viral objects relate to racial justice? Are there any specific case studies that illustrate the significance of racial justice in tracing the genealogies of the pandemic? So already I, I, I touched upon that. And I think what we are seeing with this um, pandemic because it has received a lot of um, media attention is it has kind of become a case study, particularly in countries like the US and the UK about how minorities do not have the same access to medical care. And uh, when they do seek out medical care, uh, their symptoms are often dismissed. And on top of that, they're much more likely to uh, be exposed to the virus um, because of the conditions uh, in which they are living, which are often overcrowded and or not enough access to things like clean air, um, proper nutrition. So all, all of these conditions affect uh, your overall health. And when there's a public health crisis, they um, come to the fore and they become very explicit. So one good thing I hope again that can come out of this pandemic is that these massive disparities um, become very visible and very clear so that they can be addressed. Um, and the other um, uh, clarifying moment, I think, is how connected we all are. Because, for example, the, the completely disastrous way in which the US government has more or less up to now um, dealt with the pandemic has especially affected um, people of color, black people, black communities. And precisely because of that, a massive public health crisis developed in the US. So what, what this shows is that 
there, there need to be public health infrastructures that are accessible to all. And this kind of crisis has played out in Germany in a different way because of course here, uh, healthcare is on principle accessible to everyone. But what has happened is that in um, refugee centers, there have been escalating cases of COVID-19 um, precisely for the same reason, because when you are a refugee, if you seek out uh, medical care, you're much more likely to be told, oh, you're fine, it's nothing to worry about. Uh, or you don't receive uh, quick uh, treatment or proper medical attention. Um, so all these d disparities um, have really um, become much more visible. And I think it's good that they have become more visible, that there's more media attention being paid to them. Um, but of course, uh, it's, it's a tragedy that they are uh, in place to begin with. Uh, there's, there's no reason for it in very affluent nations uh, that have ample economic means to deal with a public health crisis. It's uh, inexcusable. Are you looking at the US and the UK, the European context? Which context are you working with? So the, um, uh, the group I, I'm, I'm working with is based at the Department of English and American Studies. So my context I primarily Anglophone, so English uh, language. Um, and I look mostly at the US, but also in comparison with Canada, the UK. And of course I talk about what is um, happening in Germany because that's the, the, the place where I'm living. So I have to talk about what's happening around me. That's part of my um, methodology as well. But I'm much more conversant uh, with um, US contexts, um, particularly in terms of these disparities in access to public health. Um, so I, I focus primarily on the, on the US as a region, and then I connect it to other, um, other contexts. It would be interesting to see how these dynamics play out in other contexts, for example, in the Middle East or, or in Africa. And I'll tie that to my other question on your project. I would like to talk a bit about your broader work as a member of the Minor Cosmopolitanisms Research Training Group at the University of Potsdam. Um, what are minor cosmopolitanisms and how does the minor cosmopolitanisms framework inform your viral objects project? So I think if you, if you ask um, uh, different people, we'll all have different answers to what minor cosmopolitanisms might be. Um, for me, I, I read it very much in conversation with uh, minor literature as proposed by Deleuze and Guattari uh, in relation to Kafka's work. So the ways in which, since we are um, all working more or less on Anglophone contexts, we're interested in how minoritarian marginalized narratives um, participate and circulate within a more mainstream cosmopolitan project, um, I would say of Anglophone literatures and cultures. Um, so my project participates in the sense that I'm very interested, uh, like I think I've, uh, I've made clear in marginalized and minor narratives that circulate within scientific knowledge. Um, so I'm as, as interested in you know, the big article that has changed the course 
of coronavirus research as I am in the tiny little report that has been completely forgotten that someone wrote uh, about how someone's life was saved uh, in a hospital because they were administered enough vitamin D. Uh, so, and I like to bring these two uh, that work on such different scales. I like to, to bring them against one another uh, precisely to show how diverse and heterogeneous um, this whole edifice of biomedical knowledge production really is um, and how uncertainty uh, plays out. So what, what, what do we choose to believe in? Like I said at the beginning, what, what does that say um, about us um, as, as an individual, as a collective? Um, what are our preferences in terms of beliefs, belief systems, uh, which are always um, tied into uh, what we know, what we think we know? Yeah, so the, um, the RTG fellows, um, the minor cosmopolitanisms, uh, doctoral fellows are approaching Anglophone literatures and cultures from multiple geopolitical positions. Um, so we have uh, projects ranging from um, East Trinidad to South Africa to Maori New Zealand. Um, it's a very diverse group of um, of scholars and a broad range of, of projects that we have. On our second episode, we had Professor Sinfri Makoni and Basse Antia as our guest speakers, and they talked about the use of humor as a coping strategy in different African countries. They mentioned how people were making masks out of random objects such as lettuce or oranges. Uh, so the way people engage these viral objects is through humor. Uh, you said that the research group uh, consists of scholars who work mostly on Anglophone contexts. So I'm wondering if there are any attempts at establishing connections with how the pandemic um, the viral objects or minor cosmopolitanisms are approached in different contexts. Are there any collaborations with people who are asking similar questions in different parts of the world? I mean, definitely uh, my, my colleagues work on uh, many different um, regions. Um, one, one region I can think of, um, India. Uh, another region I can think of precisely the Middle East. Um, so, but they are working on, on their own research projects. So in terms of the, um, of the coronavirus pandemic, I pay attention to what's happening uh, globally, particularly in, in Brazil, because I speak Portuguese, so I can follow a lot of what's happening in other parts of the world. But I do think that when, um, when one is writing about something so vast, like say a global pandemic, it's really important to try and write about what you know. Um, and I have never traveled, for example, to Brazil. Uh, I've never traveled to China. Uh, I don't speak the language. Um, I don't have that kind of intimate knowledge that I think is important to have. For example, to read the images that you just mentioned, which sound fascinating. And I think I've seen something else along those lines. I'll, I'll, I'll look through my files. Um, you know, where people are using these objects like a leaf of lettuce uh, as a mask. Um, and I 
absolutely see the 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 humor and and the the relief in in creating that kind of comedy around objects but i'm not sure that i would be able to write and to read it correctly you know because i'm missing the context um i i i don't have uh, a lot of faith in um analysis that don't come from embodied knowledge right so I feel like I can write about US context because I lived in New York for seven years. It's where I did my PhD. I feel like I have um, intimate knowledge and understanding of US culture and history that I can write uh, with at least some precision uh, about its public health predicament. Um, whereas I, I don't feel that I have that about other parts of the world, including Berlin, where I live, because I don't speak German and I don't understand uh, German culture uh, to the extent that I would have to. I would have to have a much deeper immersion um, to, to be able to write with uh, conviction and precision about what's happening in, in Germany right now, which many people are. And like I mentioned, what's, what's been happening at refugee centers, for example, and in many cases, breaches human rights law. Um, and has been doing so for um, a very long time, long before the pandemic. But with the pandemic, uh, it has received more media attention. I like your use of the word intimate in thinking about intimate knowledge. And I think it ties into your discussion on thinking ecologically and thinking virally. So can we say the virus and these viral objects are changing the way we think about embodiment and intimacy because the virus affects us at the most intimate level. We put on a mask and it affects the way we breathe and breathing is a very intimate act or vaccination, it is a form of intrusion into the body. Again, coming back to this question of interiority and exteriority, what do you think is the role of embodiment in this project? And how do you approach your own embodiment as a producer of knowledge? Well, I, I think uh, precisely what you, what you just said, this um, uh, relationship between outside and inside, which the pandemic has made us much more aware of in all kinds of ways. And that to me is precisely what thinking ecologically is all about, is understanding yourself um, to be an entity who is in constant contact with your exterior, with your surroundings. So it is highly necessary to be aware of our embodiment, not as something that's closed off to the outside, you know, not just in terms of our internal body, which uh, biomedicine has a very specific tradition of understanding the body internally, uh, coming from anatomy, from physiology, from cellular biology, right? It's all about the internal part of the body. And I think it's really um, important to understand the body as an open uh, uh, surface for contact with the outside. And the pandemic has made this um, very tangible in our everyday lives. I think we are all constantly thinking about how our uh, mouth, our noses are exposed to the outside and how to manage 
that exposure. So it, it, um, it has made very many things much more clear than they were before for better and for worse. Um, but I think it has also allowed us to be much more aware of our surroundings, how we move um, through whatever place we inhabit, even more aware of our homes, um, right? Of our, our domestic space and how we inhabit that space, how we interact with the, the air quality in, in our own homes, in our cities. Um, so I think to me, thinking ecologically is very much about that, is being very aware of your embodiment in the moment, in the space that you inhabit and your interactions with your surroundings. Perhaps it also requires us to think of ourselves uh, as viral objects, as humans as viral objects as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we have uh, viruses uh, inside uh, our bodies constantly and on our bodies. Uh, we have all kinds of bacteria and, and fungi and all kinds of uh, fascinating uh, entities. So we are always these multi-species objects. We can never think of ourselves as being strictly human, right? Uh, so yeah, I like that idea of, of thinking of ourselves uh, as, as viral objects. And this pandemic has also forced us to consider how we are uh, or might be uh, sources of contagion for someone else. So that also forces us to consider how we are carriers of, of viral material, um, which, which I think might to some extent be quite beneficial. So we lose this human hubris of thinking that we are above these kinds of, uh, of interactions with the living world and with the non-living world. Yeah, I like that. I, th I think I might steal that idea. Yeah, it will be your, it. your fifth chapter. Yes, that's <laughs> <Fifth> right. <object. laughs> the fifth object. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Sophia. We're happy to have you here. Thank you too, and uh, it's it's been a real pleasure to to talk about my to talk about my project. Now I'm very excited to to return to it. Thank you, thank you for all your wonderful questions. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This series was made possible by sponsorships from the University Park Allocation Committee, the Department of Comparative Literature, the Department of Spanish, Italian and Portuguese, the Rock Ethics Institute, the Humanities Institute, and the Center for Global Studies. We at LAC thank you for your support. This episode was produced by Marveta Bur. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts and on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The Unraveling the Anthropocene project is getting bigger. During the spring and summer of 2021, we will be running a reading group to discuss the topics of race, environment, and pandemic. To join, visit our website or find Unraveling the Anthropocene on goodreads.com. Join us on Monday, March 29th at 12.15 for a keynote roundtable event organized by LAC to celebrate the Unraveling the Anthropocene project. The roundtable will feature presentations by Dr. Darren Ranko, Laura Anderson Barbata, and Melissa Lame Fernandez, who will share their work documenting the Anthropocenic crisis from the point of view of indigeneity, the environment, and the arts. For more information, you may visit our website. See you next time!